The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Thank you for joining us for this episode of 13. And surprise, it's a second episode for October. Our patrons get a second episode of the show every month. These second stories are a little shorter and not as fully produced. But they're also where we experiment and get to go a little outside of our brand. You can get a second story every month by joining our Patreon, and you get all of the other benefits you hear about in our intro every month. Before we get into the show, a quick Bridget update. We spotted dozens of possums making their way single file through the forest, and we followed them, and there she was, sleeping upside down in a sycamore tree. The possums are actually normal. They follow her everywhere year-round, but they get scared away when she's possessed. When they come back, that's how we know it's over. So we've got our Bridget back. Thanks for all your concern and kind words. Before we start the show, a quick heads up, next month the 13th falls on a Saturday, so we'll release on Monday, November 15th. This story is Catacombs, written by M. Regan. The narrator is Josiah Othniel Knight. And Isso was played by Brooke Jeanette. Now, on with the show. It is my sister's good luck that she dies first. No one expected me to outlive her. I hadn't expected to either. I'm strong, I suppose, from a childhood of chopping and hewing wood. But despite the best efforts of my teachers... I've never been very skilled at close-quarters combat. My fingers are for... delicate work. That's what father always said. Then he'd grin and tell my sister that, when the time came, she should be sure to aim for my carotid rather than my radial arteries. I'd laugh, and she'd promise she would. Had the decision been made in a more traditional fashion, I believe she would have kept that promise. I would have been the one to die. It was a certainty in my mind, one in which I had taken a great deal of comfort. But then illness came, and when it left, my sister was its escort. And so, here I stand, hale and healthy, in my best robes and new beads, protective charms wound round my arms and herbs threaded through my hair. Earlier, and with great pageantry, the high priestess had strapped a knife to my side, a ceremonial blade of silver and ostination, with archaic symbols carved into its handle. I know from having held that knife that it isn't all that heavy. Not really. But right now, in this moment, it weighs upon me more than my sister's death did. More than my sister's corpse does. After the knife, her body had been tied to my back with a red cord, the rope's girth tangling over my belly in a mess of re-spooled intestines. More effort was put into those knots that cover my sister. There was a webwork quality to what the high priestess's brother has laced over her shoulders, around her ribs, and down her spine, an homage to lacerations I did not inflict, to blood that I did not spill 
Her arms are draped around me in a parodied embrace. I watch a droplet of perfume roll down her index finger, peeling from its tip like liquefied flesh. There's a gravity to this. To all of this. To this corpse. To this ritual. To the catacombs themselves. I feel drawn into this opening in the earth, pulled towards the collapsor core of this cavern. Even the sunrise's purest rays can do no more than ripple the surface of that looming celestial gloom. Black and white, life and death. Lessons on dualism my sister will never get to learn. Existence's dichotomies occupy my thoughts as neighbors begin to file into rows behind me, backs to the light and eyes on the darkness. The sun's warmth is steadily melting their shadows into tar, and I try to distract myself by watching the slow, sticky strings of their extremities ooze across the desert clay. When dawn becomes full morning, this congealing facsimile of community reaches my sandals. They stain my feet. These are my friends. My family. People who have already made their pilgrimages into the catacombs stand side by side with those who are eagerly awaiting their turn in the void. It is bizarre to think that not so very long ago, I was one of those dreaming youths myself, wandering about my part my cadaver would play on that day. On this day, the sands have shifted, time has shifted, and the infinite possibilities that once comprised my future have shifted to align with obligations and inevitabilities creating a singular path that winds towards my destiny. At the start of that path, the High Priestess stands, smiling. The expression is wide enough to crinkle the bandages that cover her empty sockets. She asks with solemnity, Are you prepared? Whether or not she'll believe me, I know better than to tell her the truth. I say yes. I try not to stare at the coal smudge that has marred the outline of her right eye, leaving the muslin gray. It helps when she steps to the side, choosing to walk next to me as I approach the mouth of the cave. Bells sing around the high priestess's weathered ankles. Bangles chitter on translucent wrists. They are as much a warning as the few words she offers. Choose wisely, she almost chides. Some wistful incantation of fondness has caught in the corner of her lips, much how a dreamcatcher snares a nightmare. It festers when the high priestess lingers, standing on the edge of what she cannot see. What she could not see, not ever again, even if her brother had not robbed her of her sight. I am uninjured. My sister could pass for sleeping. The high priestess's brother is standing to my left, his white teeth dyed scarlet by daybreak. Excess luminance dribbles off his canines, down his chin, until it reaches the antiquated shaft of the spear that remains impelled through his throat. When he echoes the high priestess's sentiment, air and vowels leak through his lesions, unraveling his words so that each is heard three times. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. Although the eyes that look into mine 
are comprised of the same muscles and fluids. His gaze is more abhuman than his sister's sketched stare could ever be. And I fear whatever it is he sees in me. Just as I fear whatever it is I see in him. That sentience which lurks in the depths of dilated pupils, transplendent and transcendental. Like a glass shard, the high priestess's brother reflects radiance without creating it, mirrors humanity without being it, and his voice is suffused with wheezy omniscience when he adds, It is not only your own fate that you will be deciding, deciding, deciding. Inside the catacombs, torchlight flickers and flits, a fickle touch on antediluvian stone. Here, gone, gold to obsidian. In those ephemeral moments, I notice swirling minerals, crystalline strata, handprints and footprints and fingerprints that have been smeared like the high priestess's lashes, smoky shapes that suggest so much and tell so little. Jagged edges point out details, while moss spores and glowworms create constellations over runes, cuneiform, hieroglyphs. There are stories here, layer upon sedimentary layer of history, remnants of ritual written on the rocks, and a Gordian knot of timelines with loose ends that I have been charged to follow. I obey, sensing as I do every gaze that follows after, the first I find are indistinguishable from those natural mounds and boulders that are piled along the walls. They're smooth, featureless, lumpy and crumbling. Only the glossy patina of skin oil that remains upon their contours hints at what they had once been. In the dim, these stones resemble graves. I am grateful that the air does not taste of decay, even as I wish it did. The torch that I clutch in my fist begins to quaver, its flames like hair in deep water. It is a struggle to breathe. But that would not excuse a failure to introduce myself. Hear me, all who share this profane tomb. I stand before you, the champion of battle. See how I am laden with glory, with purpose, with the corpse of my fallen adversary. See how she resembles you in stillness. Already, she too is nameless and forgotten. What has history taught you? What have you learned from abandonment? That only the victor's will shall see you evoked once more. My will, and mine alone. This is the conqueror's privilege, to decide who is honored, who is remembered, who is damned to rot into obscurity. So I ask you, you gathered and forsaken divine, to submit to me. Worship me, that I might worship you. This final shout lingers, haunting the space between my nose and my torch. It spirals, misty. It fades, evanescent. But though its ghost vanishes, the message's spirit lives on. Through the labyrinthine black, I can hear my invitation resound and reverberate becoming a cacophony comprised of one voice, one prayer, one answer. Worship me. Worship me. Worship me. Worship me. When next I stop, 
It is before an orgy of masonry bodies. They reach for me from a northern niche. Their petrified arms turned partly to ash. It is the one with three and a half fingers that I ask. What is your offering? What will you give? There is a pause before it answers. But when it speaks, it does so in a voice that is mine and isn't mine, and is and isn't the voice of everyone I've ever known. A distant, too-close whisper in the back of my mind. I will give you health. Your body will know vigor, and your mind will know strength. With me, no sickness shall touch you for all of your years. The stench of preservative still clings to my sister's corpse, rancidly sweet. I glower at its mockery before turning away. You, two down and four to the back. What will you offer? I will give you sunrise. I will give you verdant greens, flowers and ferns, and food from the earth. All the magic that the soil possesses. All the beauty and the power. Its cooing resonates in the chamber of my skull, in the pit of its entrapment. There are serpentine shadows slithering in that nook, torturous and twisting around under defined stoles. As I watch, a desperate thread of nothingness detaches, stretches, and is rewound into the abyss. I step back, my torch hissing. There are plenty more niches. There are hollows and crannies and alcoves, too. There are natural shelves and man-made shelves and no shelves at all, but instead rows upon rows of splintered remains. I think of teeth, of gullets and bellies and insides turned out. Then I walk on. The pattern continues. I can't say for how long. Time is meaningless in this place. What will you offer? I will give you command over your fellows. The valor to lead, the wisdom to guide, the courage to inspire. To the humans you will be like a king, and to the kings you will be like a god. What will you offer? I will give you love, passion and pleasure, kindness and compassion. Never again will you know a cold bed, a lonely night, a friendless day. Choose me and you shall bask in devotion until your dying breath. What will you offer? I will give you gold, coins, jewels, silks, marble, ivory, all the precious treasures your purse can hold, never depleting, never in want. Your cup shall runneth over until you are drowning in luxuries. What will you offer? 
I will give you luck. Better than skill, and more reliable than mercy. Fortune's favor shall be yours in every endeavor, however poor your odds or foolish your gamble. I keep walking. The effigy at the crossroads is no more or less decrepit than any of the others I have passed. When scrutinizing it, I find myself thinking that, possibly, it is Mesopotamian, or more possibly, it is Babylonian, or, most possible of all, it is so incomprehensibly old that there is no longer any record of the people who once revered it, nor of the circumstances that saw it exiled to the catacombs. War. Plague. Genocide. It's all pitiful. It's all boggling. It's all impossible to wrap my mind around. How the ground on which my society was built is comprised of tiered apocalypses. Millenniums have stripped away the majority of its definition. But the idol before me has managed to retain some of its limbs. A chunk of its hair. Some small details still remain on its face. Like the suggestion of a nose. Looking lower, I notice toes. The scoring on its torso likely denotes missing jewelry. And though its wedge-shaped body does not quite reach my knees, it radiates an aura that both innovates and imposes. I stand before the carved deity, deliberating, silent. Shadows dance around us with devilish dexterity their gossamer tendrils prehensile in the gloom. After countless hours, after so much dissatisfaction, there was little expectation in the demand when I intone, What will you offer? For a beat, my mind echoes with emptiness. Then, I will give you nothing. If there are issues to be had with my sister's corpse, lingering bacteria or stiffness, muscular deterioration, the entity makes no complaints about them. On the contrary, it seems greatly pleased. I'm not sure it even noticed the line that my ceremonial knife had gouged into its new vessel's palm, ripping a scrap of cloth from my now-defiled robes. I wonder if I ought to offer it a bandage. Or maybe I should wrap its palm after finishing with my own. If I don't, will the cut heal? If I do, will it scar? Will my sister's body suddenly remember how to bleed? The blood that stains our matching gashes belongs to me. Only me. This is not surprising. I am well acquainted with the preservation process. It doesn't worry me either. Not exactly. Every resurrection is different. Everybody knows that. Still. Human cells die every day, you know. The reassurance, unexpectedly given, is meant to stop my racing thoughts. Instead, it stops my racing heart. Though what speaks is not my sister, 
Its words are being woven with the loom of the dead girl's larynx. That is my sister's voice. Even if her lips are not yet in sync enough to provide the illusion of speech, that is my sister's voice. Millions of them. Hundreds of millions. At any given instant, you may be more dead than alive and not even realize it. This body, your body, all mortal bodies are unintelligent. However, that is what makes them perfect vessels. Because these automatous machines are already accustomed to shambling around in states of decay. I need but to give this one a tiny push to make it move again. My sister's body contorts into no less than four distinct shapes as she makes her explanations. When finished, her left arm looks strung up by fish hooks and her right dislocated, while hands that have never been as delicate as mine twitch on their ends. There is a grotesque elegance to the way that her vertebrae grate against one another when she bends further, 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 back, back, back into an arch that is still somehow less dramatic than the curve of her grin. I count all twenty-eight teeth in her inverted smile. Better that than trying to process my emotions. So you... You don't need my help to... to walk out of the catacombs. I need no more than what you have already given. Wide eyes catch my own. Irises bleached two shades from white by what shines within the cavity that had once contained a soul. Whatever this entity is, god or devil, monster or spirit, it is mine now. Mine for now. Mine to take back home. It is tradition to name one's new companion after the gift they promised. I'm not sure why. Maybe to serve as a reminder between mortal and divine. Maybe to spare the deities the shame of admitting they can't remember their old names. Or maybe it's just a roundabout way to brag. It is nothing short of blasphemous to speak about packs forged in the catacombs. Doing so is forbidden. Doing so explicitly is forbidden, anyway. And so I cannot explicitly say who keeps to this tradition. Some, I would imagine. Not everyone. A few, I have gathered, were quite studious in their commitment to the idea, while others took a laxer, or more creative approach. Whatever the breakdown... It is the reason our communal language is now colored by Japanese and by Latin, by Rotaran and French and Greek and Kosha and Egyptian and English and Sarsi and Grelini. Of the 10,000 books in the High Priestess's Holy Library, over half are dictionaries. It is to these that I am allowed access, just like those who came before me. When the corpse who was my sister and I call upon the High Priestess the morning after our successful return from the catacombs. In the kaleidoscopic light of orsi-stained glass, 
my not-sister reads up on what history she has missed. I comb through endless tomes of names. To my frustration, knowing the kind of name that I'm looking for does not make the task less challenging. If anything, it makes it more so. But I am the delicate one. Delicacy cannot be attained without patience, and patience breeds its own sort of tenacity. Eventually, I find it, and straighten from my slouch against the cool adobe wall. Isso. Hmm? That's the name I've chosen for you. Isso. It's Hebrew, according to this book. Which was a language, I guess. It was. Well, all right then. That's... That's decided. Iso is what you will be called. Indeed. Hmm. Iso. The deity who has housed itself within my sister's corpse repeats its new name, again and again, in low tones and high tones, and completely toneless. It hasn't been long, but she has already gained impressive control over her lip movements. Other fine motor skills are also being honed. Iso has demonstrated, as much by methodically plucking the halo of petals from the celebratory pimpernel crown that the high priestess's brother had dropped upon her head when she crossed the threshold into the house. Now, she is ringed by a mobius chain of unsanctified heads, and frankly seems happier for it. Her smile reminds me of the catacombs, dark and long and full of stolen bones. Very well. Isso, I shall be. Why not? In the end, it matters little how humanity refers to me. For names are so often lost, forgotten, or misremembered anyway. And I shall be what I am regardless of any attached title. But what about you, my unsullied victor? That is a fair question. What about me? Glancing askance, I run a finger along my book's spine, feeling when I do something shiver down my own. Quietly, I tell her, I also... am what I am. Oh-ho! And you are? I am... in training, like the other young people in our village. Traditionally, this means studying theology under aunts. Weaponry with mothers. Uncles teach their nieces and nephews about histories, literatures, and cultures other than our own, while grandmothers and grandfathers instruct on the practical matters, like beadwork and protective magics, and navigation and technology. But I am apprenticed to our... to my father. Some would argue that mine is the most important and sacrosanct training of all. An undertaker, I should have guessed. Iso giggles, her waxen hand melting down the warm sides of embalming bottles. Needles shine in a line on the table beside her, mercurial, providing a warped reflection of her amusement. I tweak my expression with the same delicacy for which father praises me. The same delicacy I would a cadaver's. Why? Why? 
Because your vessel is so magnificently preserved? Because no one else would have seen the great value of my offer. She examines the frame of my newest cremation coffin, pushing nails into carved boards. Someday soon, I'll train Iso to assist with those tasks that hands like hers can do, much as father's companion helps him. By bunching asphodel and dodecathion, by buying relevant chemicals, by talking to the bereaved. For now, though, I allow her to prowl and slink and sniff and settle into the parlor, if only because it keeps her entertained while I carve a liturgy of funerary ruins into the coffin's lid. It is easier to talk to her when I don't have to look at her. Over time, I hope this will change. I assume it will change. But then... I had also assumed I would die first. My sigh scatters wooden curls and juniper perfume across the parlor's back room. Blood and promise bind us, you and I, when my blood runs dry and your promise is realized. Nevermore shall we rise. I remember. It was but days ago when we made that pact, silly. And you meant it. It is not a question, so it makes sense that Iso does not answer. It's just, well, I've handled so many dead bodies, human, vessel. There are some I feel intensely for, and some not at all. We're not entirely different in that respect. You have seen death too, the loss of your people, the expiry of your religion, I don't doubt it was a traumatic experience, but so far, despite the depths of our emotions, our only losses have been external. True death, when it comes for us, will be intimate. It will be more final than any battle, more permanent than any abandonment. My understanding of matters like philosophy and theology might be, well, lacking, but... I have seen enough of nature to know that it is forever striving towards equilibrium. The days are half light, half dark. The years are half cold, half hot. There are deserts and oceans, plains and mountains. Babies are born and the elderly pass. Human death precedes a chosen god's new life. And so what of every blessing given? It seems to me... It seems a curse must follow. These grim thoughts betray far more than my profession. They reveal the tarnished cogs of me, the creaking inner workings that have been grinding ceaselessly since the day I first learned about the haunted, omnistic cemetery that is the catacombs. I startle when I notice just how close Iso has crept. There is a softness to her now, to her gaze, to her voice to her step, that I can only describe as uncanny. What are you proposing precisely, little one? That our heavenly gifts become the tortures of hell once our time here is up? Pale eyes ascend like twin stars above the horizon of the coffin lid, a pair of contrasting Polaris lights. I feel the urge to follow, but cannot tell the way. Instead, 
I looked down at the wood grain, at its bleak, maze-like patterns. I trace one of its trails and know that I am approaching the borders of a different sort of blasphemy. I am skirting its edges as I would the hingework of a coffin, but then these are the sort of things I have always prayed about. Why not discuss them with a god? I... Maybe. Maybe? The ancient societies. I learned that their rulers tried to dictate morality by promising their followers posthumous rewards, riches and virgins, and happiness in an afterlife. But then, those ancient societies were not as entwined with the divine as we are. So, maybe we, in this modern age, are being paid in advance. Maybe our judgment comes early, while standing amongst the dead rather than lying with them. Maybe we're pulling angels from above, only to fashion them into our own personal demons. The corners of Iso's mouth rise. Slow. Enigmatic. They curve into a crescent moon, silvery and mirror smooth. And I can see my own face in the bone structure of my dead sister's features. I find myself thinking of the damned, of the delivered, of how badly I wanted to die first. Iso hums again, a habit that is fully her own. In some of those more ancient societies, ignorance was said to have been called bliss. If this was really your one chance at paradise, child, wouldn't it have been wiser to ignore the truth? If companionship was your one chance to escape the catacombs, wouldn't it have been wiser to offer my predecessor something tangible and shallow? Touché. My ears blister beneath the heat of Iso's preternatural gaze. There is an emotion pulsing behind those eyes, and it is visceral, cosmic, and terrible. It is beautiful, and exultant, and eternal. It is a sentiment that defies definition, much like this entity itself. But just as convention has compelled me to name Iso, so too does human nature compel me to name this. I will give you nothing, the effigy had vowed. If everything really does balance back to zero, that might be the only salvation available to someone like me. While you sought my newest name, I skimmed a story from a civilization that came after my own. It bored me a bit. Perhaps something lost in translation or to time. But in that story there was a character with your name. And to him it was said, Brother, as a man in tears would, you transcend all the rest who've gathered, for you can cry and kill with equal force. Hold my hand in yours, and we will not fear what hands like ours can do. Scream in unison, we will ascend to death or love, to say in song what we shall do. Our cry will shoot afar so this new weakness, awful doubt, will pass through you. Stay, brother. Let us ascend as one. I can still feel Iso staring, 
tender with veneration. There is to that stare the delicacy my sister had always lacked, and I know in the core of my bones that Isso could carve epitaphs into my sanity with the same elegance I could a grave marker. Visceral, cosmic and terrible, beautiful and exultant and eternal. I shudder, because mankind struggles to withstand its own love, because there will be no surviving the love of a god. But then, I suppose, death itself was never the question. From the blinding dark to the blinding light, I shall worship you all of our days in Kidu. And I shall worship you, Iso. Setting down my chisel, I brush the lid of the coffin clean. Motes of dust swirl about the workshop, vanishing into nihility as I take a moment to admire this once mighty thing. My power, it is limbless and bare, reduced to golden coils and broken rings, a lifeless vessel for a doomed soul and an empty husk. With my hand gently, unseeingly extended, I say to my companion, Come, this is ready to be burned. <laughs>